You are listening to Making Waves, fresh ideas in freshwater science. Making Waves is a bi-monthly podcast where we discuss new ideas in freshwater science and why they matter to you. Making Waves is brought to you with support from the Society for Freshwater Science, Arizona State University's School of Life Sciences, the University of Washington's School of Aquatic and Fishery Sciences, and Cornell University's Ecology and Evolutionary Biology Department. Welcome to Making Waves. I'm your host, Erin Larson, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Jonathan Tonkin. Jonathan is currently a postdoctoral scholar at Oregon State University, and his research interests focus on figuring out how biodiversity is maintained at multiple scales, integrating both empirical and computational approaches. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. Thanks. It's great to be here. We're glad to have you here. Um, so I wanted to start it out talking a little bit about some of your recent work. Um, you have a bunch of interesting papers that have come out in the last year, um, but I'd like to specifically start by talking about your recent paper in ecology titled Seasonality and Predictability Shape Temporal Species Diversity. Um, you know, temporal dynamics are often ignored or thought to be too difficult to incorporate into empirical work. And then as a result, we often use space for time substitutions or assume that in dynamic systems, a one-time sampling can capture what's happening. And in your paper, you talk about how abiotic predictability can shape temporal biodiversity. Can you tell us a little bit more about the goals of that project? Yeah, sure. Um, so we, we set out to sort of explore the, the way that seasonality can affect biodiversity in, in general. Um, but with the additional idea that while the extent of seasonality can vary wherever you are on the planet, um, so ranging from really highly seasonal environments through to aseasonal environments, so can the, the predictability of the environment as well. So we kind of essentially consider seasonality and environmental predictability as separate entities that shape and regulate um, biodiversity. So in the paper, we focus in on, on temporal beta diversity or temporal species diversity. So this is essentially the turnover or the change in communities from one time point to another. Um, and we set up some hypotheses based on the environmental seasonality and predictability um, in terms of how it regulates temporal diversity. Um, and so think, for instance, of a, of a highly seasonal environment. If it's not predictable, that seasonality, then organisms are not able to sort of evolve life histories to sort of segregate their niches out in time within a year to capitalise on those environments. So if you have a highly seasonal and predictable environment, then species are able to sort of um, diverge their niches in time and separate their niches in time to sort of form and focus in on different times in the year. So think, for instance, of a, of a Mediterranean system. You have a, a Mediterranean stream, um, and there's been some really great work in California from Vince Resch and his colleagues. Um, there, the, the seasonality is so predictable um, that it enables species to diverge their niches um, between different time points in the year. And so if you look at a historical hydrograph or a, um, or a rainfall um, record, you can see this, this real strong cyclicality um, from one season to the next, and it repeats from year to year. And so that enables these species to diverge their niches, and, and you can actually see this with, with the benthic invertebrate communities, um, where you have two distinct communities in time within a year in the exact same location. So you have mayflies, stoneflies, and caddisflies dominating in the, in the winter, where it's colder and, and water's clearer, and the, the river cooks down, the streams cook down and get much warmer and, and um, sort of less clean, I guess, and you have OCH or odonates, coleopterans, and permitrans. And so that sort of suggests that highly predictable seasonality 
recall that sort of promotes the greatest temporal species diversity. Um, and where you don't have that predictability, you have much lower. Um, on the other hand, if you have high predictability of environment, but it doesn't change throughout the year, um, then you might expect to have high alpha diversity. Think of sort of a, a tropical system where you have um, a lot of species packing in to a, to, a, to a location. But if you go at different times in the year, the community is going to be pretty similar. So you have high alpha diversity, but low temporal beta diversity. And at the very end of the spectrum, you have aseasonal and unpredictable systems where you might expect low alpha diversity and also low variability in time. So we set up this framework to, to test these hypotheses and we developed methods um, to, to sort of quantify, um, we used methods to quantify um, seasonality and predictability using Colwell's um, and Wavelet's methods, but I won't go into the detail of those. Um, and, and so we use a bunch of data from around the world to sort of look at these, these seasonal and, and predictable environmental aspects, but also we use uh, three study locations around the world to, to sort of explore the stream invertebrate communities as well. So we use some of the data from California um, and where, um, where it's highly predictable, Mediterranean, and we expected that these would have the highest level of temporal beta diversity. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we, we chose data from New Zealand, which is like an island nation in the middle of the ocean, um, the Pacific Ocean, where it's sort of at the mercy of big sort of frontal storms coming out of the ocean on a regular basis. So while it's sort of seasonal, it's, it's, it's sort of more muted, that seasonality. We have warmer summers and colder winters and more rainfall in the winter than you have in summer. But we can also have a big flood at any time of the year um, because of these storms that come in. And then in the middle, we have um, Arizona streams, which are sort of more seasonal um, and predictable, but less so than California. They have these two rainfall pulses throughout the year. They have the winter frontal storms and they have um, summer monsoons. And so we expect that they would be intermediate in terms of their turnover, and the New Zealand streams would have much lower um, turnover. And it sort of it, it came out as we predicted. You have the highest level of variability of temporal species diversity in the California streams, and the lowest in New Zealand. Um, and looking at that from an ordination an ordination graph, um, if you're familiar with that sort of approach, you see that there's this real back and forth in the California systems between these two distinct communities, and it repeats over and over again. Whereas in the New Zealand case, it's much more variable. It's just this sort of um, scattered mess of points. So thinking about what it all means, I guess it's really important to have an understanding of, of the sort of environmental template that your streams are, are sitting in. If you have these, these really seasonal and predictable environments, like in the Mediterranean systems, you go and sample them at one point in time, whether it's for a, for a basic perspective or for some sort of applied um approach, whether it be for biomonitoring, you could really undervalue biodiversity. Um, if you go and sample once, then you're going to have potentially half of the, the actual biodiversity that's situated in that stream, because the other half turns up later in the year. And if it's for a, for a much more unpredictable system like in New Zealand, then your streams could all be at a different stage of post-flood recolonisation. So it's really fundamental to have an understanding of, of what's going on there. Great. Yeah, so one question I had for you is, I was interested in the finding that you guys had that turnover rather than nestedness was what was driving some of those temporal diversity patterns. And I was wondering if you could describe a little bit more um, the difference between turnover and nestedness for folks and why that is a potentially important result. Yeah, sure. So turnover is um, essentially replacements of communities in time. So you can have beta diversity, which is variability, 
um, between different communities. Um, but it can be structured through potentially through turnover or through nestedness. So turnover is replacements of species in time or in space, and nestedness is um, species at one point in time or in one point in space are a subset of those found at a different um, at a different time or location. One of the things that you guys write in your paper is that you hope that this paper will, and I'm quoting here, spark renewed interest in the role of seasonality. And so you've mentioned already that folks should think about sort of when they're sampling. Um, And are there any other suggestions you might have for scientists who study dynamic systems like streams in terms of how they think about incorporating temporal scales into their work? Yeah, that's a really tough question to answer. Um, you know, because it's the, the easiest answer is to say that, you know, we really need to be incorporating temporal dynamics in our sampling. Um, but often that's that's really cost or time prohibitive. Um, and so um, I, th- I think at a minimum it's it's a really it's really important to have a really strong grasp on the on the system that you're studying. Um, and so like I said, if it's a Mediterranean system, then you need to realize that if you go at a particular time in the year, you're really getting half of the biodiversity that's there. Um, and like in the New Zealand stream or, or other sort of flashy system, then um, you need to have a, a grasp on, on the antecedent flow conditions. Um, the, the communities are all potentially at different stages of, of recolonization following floods and disturbance. Yeah. Very cool. And you mentioned a little bit some of the applied implications of this framework in terms of biomonitoring. And I was wondering if there are other ways that you think about this in terms of applications for management of systems, you know, in terms of thinking about, you know, if a system has a certain level of seasonality or predictability, like how do we think about managing that to maintain biodiversity? Yeah, um, that's tricky. I guess the, the key is to, to, first of all, know what you're valuing. Um, you know, like I said, if you're if you're sampling at a particular point in time and you're quantifying your streams and the health of your stream, if you go in summer, often you might get lower biomonitoring scores or, or um, other aspects of your, your biomonitoring system um, because the communities to those that are sort of adapted to live in really hot water conditions or really harsh um, harsh conditions compared to if you went in, in, in winter. And so having a good understanding of, of the the actual seasonality and the environmental variability is really crucial for for being able to sort of value them first of all. And so you, you might not be able to pick up the, the land use effects or um, sort of discharge effects in some streams that have a, a really stochastic environment compared to some that are much more predictable and, and stable through time, for instance. Awesome. Yeah, and another thing I was interested in is at the end of the paper, um, you guys talk a little bit about applying this to other types of systems besides stream systems as well. And I was wondering if you could talk through how you think about applying this framework to other types of systems that have seasonality and predictability really shaping communities. Yeah, um, that was that was really interesting to get into. So, you know, there's a lot of other systems that are really, I mean, seasonality is at the, the heart of sort of environmental gradients around the world and so there's a lot of things that are affected by seasonality um, but but the combination of seasonality and predictability and you know you think about um, we, we use a case study of, of um, waterfowl migrations that capitalize on, um, on on predictable seasonality and so this is like a, a, a clear explanation for this sort of secondary peak and latitude and species richness for these waterfowl is because 
because it, there's, there's these clear locations where the, the predictable the, the seasonality is really predictable. Um, and a lot there's a lot of literature on coexistence and the storage effect um, from sort of arid annual plant systems where we have this um, you have these two rainfall peaks that allow these two distinct communities to, to sort of pop out at different times of the year. And I think that's really fascinating. Um, and there's so many other systems that have these these, these aspects of, of seasonality um, that are open for exploring with this framework as well. Yeah. That's great. Um, speaking of other systems, I wanted to transition to talk about another recent paper that you have out um, where you guys were modeling um, riparian plant dynamics under different hydrologic regimes. Um, and that was a paper that was headed up by Dave Lytle. And I was wondering if you could just give us a brief summary of that project as well. Yeah, sure. So this is um, the first product out of a, a large collaborative project that I'm part of. Um, so the PIs on the project are Dave and Dave Lytle and Julian Alden and Dave Merritt. And there's also Lindsay Reynolds and Jane Pencil on the, on the project as well. And so we're, we're forecasting... Um, we're developing methods for forecasting um, aquatic populations and dynamic systems, and we're really focusing in on the arid southwest. Um, and so we're, we're, we're basing these approaches on the idea that the, that the flow regime is the master variable in the streams and rivers. Um, so we're using this flow regime as sort of the main predictor of populations of, of riparian plants and fish and invertebrates um, using a variety of approaches. But this, this paper in particular developed a method um, uh, for coupled stochastic population models, um, so where we're combining really detailed stage-specific vital rates of, of riparian plants with specific attributes of the flow regime. Um, so the vital rates are, are things like how, how the plants relate to the flow regime, so their, their susceptibility to floods and their susceptibility to droughts and, and so on. Um, but we don't include anything to do with biotic interactions in this model, and, and so it's, it's a really cool approach um, and what's so cool about it is that we're able to really recover known population trends of, of key plant gills um, from on-the-ground measurements through vital rates and flow regimes on their own. Um, so I think this is a really cool mechanistic way of modelling communities and, and populations um, that can be really useful for managers that are operating and managing flow regimes and operating dams, um, releasing water. Um, to key in on specific aspects of the community they want to they want to promote with with, with uh, prescribed or environmental flow regimes, um, or um, individual aspects of, of key um, populations, whether it be sort of managing for promoting cottonwoods over tamarisk, for instance. So we show that um, in that case, you know, bringing a flood five or ten days earlier in the year really benefits cottonwood over tamarisk, so the invasive species is getting sort of pushed out. If you push it back later by a few days, then you, you start to enable tamarisk to take over. So these are really key little changes in, in the way that you can operate a river flow region can have massive implications on what's downstream. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, and so what are some of the future directions where that you guys are hoping to take this work? Yeah, so one of the, the really exciting things is we that we, we got out of that paper um, and we've, we're sort of employing, employing it employing it in a, in a follow-up paper that's in revision at the moment, um, is that we developed a way of sort of quantifying emergent interactions between guilds and, and stage classes um, in the model um, that we didn't specify at the, at the outset. So many things these plants require is space on the landscape. And so this is sort of a, fi a finite space. It's in a, in a spatially implicit model. Um, 
And so what we did was develop this method um, of sensitivity analysis to quantify these emergent interactions. So sensitivity analysis is like a way to test if the model's working properly. So you modify a vital rate in really minute increments, and you see if that individual um, guild or that stage class um, responds in a way that it should be. So if we modify cottonwood, the adult stage of cottonwood, for instance, um, if we modify its flood susceptibility value, then it should theoretically decline linearly in terms of its population abundance if we run it through the model. And so we did that, and when we did that, we thought, well, you know, if its abundance is declining in response to those changes, then it's opening up space for other species to come in and, and take over. And so we, then we thought we'd actually plot this out in space and have a look at it, and we can see that other species are responding positively to changes in, in another guild. And so we thought, well, actually, if we do this for all guilds and all stage classes, then we can sort of quantify these potential interactions between individual species that are like an, an emergent interaction um, that, that represent competition for space. So we, we form these into networks um, of interactions, of emergent interactions, and, and we're able to show that in the follow-up paper without sort of giving away completely is that the natural flow regime is really fundamental. Maintaining aspects of the natural flow regime is fundamental for maintaining the complexity of these ecological networks. As we move away from the natural flow regime, and in particular, as we, we reduce the amount of floods, so whether it be through drought, increases in drought over climate change, through, through climate change, or whether it be through removing floods from, from a dam management scenario where you have a stable base flow, you have a real collapse in the, in the complexity of these networks. And actually, adding floods doesn't have so much of an effect. So because these species are so adapted to capitalise on, on the flow regime, um, to set seed and so on, um, it's really fundamental to maintain the floods in particular, um, to, to, to maintain their, their robustness. Awesome. That's super interesting. Um, one question I had um, as someone who works more empirically was what are some of the challenges that are associated when you do big modeling projects like this? I know in the um, previous paper that we were talking about, you mentioned that some of the vital rates for some of the riparian plant guilds had to be estimated since there weren't empirical values. Like, is lack of empirical data sometimes the limiting factor? Are there other challenges that arise when you're doing a more modeling approach to these types of questions? Yeah, so, I mean, in terms of the, the vital rates, we were lucky to have a real expert um, riparian plant dude on the team. So Dave Merritt, is, is, um, his, his natural history knowledge of riparian plants in the southwest is, is incredible. So we're, it, was, it was key to have him on board and, and able to sort of fill in a lot of that information. Um, and I think that's what's really exciting about this approach is that we're sort of coupling really detailed natural history information with more computational approaches. Um, but in terms of the challenges for computational um, approaches, I guess the main one is making sure you have access to a, to a high-performance computing cluster. Um, you know, like some of the stuff that I did for the follow-up paper, it took 500 days of computing time. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And so with, without without access to that, you have you couldn't do it on your desktop. Or if you did, you'd have really good holidays for a year. You could run a model and then go away for, for, for a year and come back. Um, but uh, so I think that's probably one of the keys is to, to have access to something like that. Um, sure. Cool. And I guess another question I had for you kind of stemming off of that, um, I know you've sort of made a shift from primarily empirical work to incorporating more computational approaches. And first of all, for folks who might not be familiar with the phrase computational ecology, I was wondering if you could 
just tell us a little bit about quickly what computational ecology is and why it's such a big growing field right now. Um, yeah. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I, I think of computational ecology as not really being independent from other forms of ecology, but maybe, you know, it, it's, it's essentially the same thing in that you're asking questions, important and complex ecological questions, but maybe the difference is that you are focusing more on really large-scale data sets, empirical data sets, or relying on more advanced computational approaches um, and mathematical and statistical models. Um, you know, key examples might be exploring ecological networks because they, they involve a lot of data and, and um, complex information. Uh, it might be using machine learning techniques to, or AI to sort of advance predictive ability um, or even sort of simulation-based approaches to, to test key hypotheses. And I think that's one of the key, key aspects is, you know, uh, these computer models allow us to sort of test, rapidly test ecological ideas um, through simulation. And, you know, they provide us that, that ability to sort of ask what-if questions that we, we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. Uh, I think, I guess the growth, the most obvious reason for growth of that field is the, the advancements in computing power and, and access to high-performance computing facilities. Um, but I think the other is openness in science. And I think whether that openness be um, sort of people sharing data sets or code or methods, um, I think that's a real key to advancing our, the speed of ecology and science in general and our ability to sort of, you know, expand rapidly into new ideas. And, you know, I think, for instance, for, for, about R, you know, the, the programming language R, that's uh, really sort of um, exploded over the last few years and, and it's just, it's so easy now to be able to reproduce someone else's results and, and use that um, the methods that they employ to sort of ask or expand into questions on your own. Um, much more easy than, than previously when people were using Excel and, and drop-down box stats programs, mm-hmm. for example. Cool. And what are um, – I just have a couple more questions in this vein of questioning about – like if you're if you're someone who's thinking about making that type of transition, um, whether you're an early career researcher or someone who's deciding to steer into computational ecology more um, as an approach, do you have any thoughts or recommendations for folks who are sort of looking to make that transition? Yeah, I guess for an early career, I guess it would be to start programming early, learn a learn a language, um, and preferably for an ecologist, it would be R because that's probably what ninety percent of us use. Um, and, you know, I think about it in terms of it's a big investment up front and it feels like a waste of time when you start, when you're learning, but every line of code you write um, and notate saves you a lot of stress and anxiety and time further down the line. And there's a quote um, from uh, the Software Carpentry course, I think, um, where it says your primary collaborator is yourself six months from now and your past self doesn't answer emails. And I, I think that's a really fascinating way to put it. And, you know, we've all been there where we've had those moments where we're either we're about to we're going through the proofs of our paper and we have to reproduce that graph or um, reproduce some results and we just cannot figure out what we did to get there. And back in the day of using Excel and other stats programs, you know, if we had to change one value in a, in a um, original data file and you had to go through like 50 procedures to get to the final point, if you have your code scripted and fully um, in, in either a single script file or in multiple files with a, with a make file, um, uh, and you have a fully script-based approach, then you can just avoid this entirely. You can have just one click or one type in make and reproduce everything. 
go. And that's a, that's a huge stress reliever, I think, even though it does take an investment up front. So I like to think of coding and reproducible methods as like a stress management tool. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that's a good, a good thought. And so the other question and the sort of final question I had was, um, you mentioned folks like Dave Merritt as being awesome collaborators because they just have this wealth of natural history knowledge and are just amazing in that regard. And I was wondering if you also had advice for folks who are empiricists or natural historians, but who are interested in entering into more computational ecology collaboration. So maybe aren't interested in doing all the coding, et cetera, but are interested in supporting and being part of projects that use computational approaches. If there are thoughts you have as one of the more computationally focused people of how, what skills they can bring to the table, what, um, yeah, advice or recommendations you might have for folks like that. Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess the best case scenario is to learn a bit of script because it, it, you know, and preferably R because it's it, it does help you understand what's going on if you have a basic working knowledge of it. Um, and I think another one would be to learn Git. Um, so Git is like a version control system, and it's a it's a really good way to collaborate as well between between people if you learn Git, and then you can work through GitHub, which is a central repository, so people can store their code and their data files on there, and then you can sort of collaborate with people back and forth um, through that through that environment. Um, yeah, other than that, I'm, I'm not really sure. I think that would probably be my two main pieces of advice, yeah. Yeah, and for them to remember that that's having empiricists and having natural historians is like a huge, important component of doing yeah. these types of projects like they don't it's not just computational ecologists working alone in a silo exactly yeah i think that's that's fundamentally important and it's it, you know people are we're losing natural historians at a rapid rate because the, the jobs are harder and not as you know it's harder to get money for people to do that sort of thing and so i think um you know keep keep going with natural history it's like it's it's a fundamentally important aspect of what we do yeah great i agree um well, awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, Jonathan. Um, I wanted to give you an opportunity if there's anything else you'd like to add to wrap up or if you're feeling good. Uh, I think I'm feeling good. Yeah, thanks very much. For yeah, thank It's been great. Yeah, yeah awesome. Um, great. You've been listening to the Making Waves podcast, brought to you with support by the Society for Freshwater Science. For more info on this speaker, the Making Waves podcast, or the Society in general, please visit us on the web at the Society for Freshwater Science webpage. Tune in next time for another fresh idea in freshwater science.